0: So I welcome you this morning to Echoes of Mercy and Whispers of Love, Part 2. Blessed assurance, indeed. Last week, when we looked at Paul's trial before Governor Felix, we noted that there are many echoes of the trials of Jesus Christ seen in the trials of Paul. We're going to continue to hear those echoes as the background music today When Paul makes his defense before Governor Festus and then before King Agrippa. We've already seen Governor Felix's response to Paul's presentation of the gospel when he says, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Today, we're going to see the response of Governor Festus, the rationalist who responds by telling Paul, You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. And the response of King Agrippa. Do you think in such a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? It's helpful again for us to remember that in these trials of Paul, we are walking into politically charged scenes. Governor Felix, who left Paul in prison, has been ousted from office after complaints of cruelty and corruption Reached Rome. Nero was the sitting emperor at the time, and had it not been for the influence of Felix's brother Pallas, he would have been faced severe punishment, possibly even death. So when chapter 25 opens, Felix is out and Festus is the new man on the job. But he doesn't come into office with a clean slate. Felix is left behind a little gift for the governor. We were told in the last verse of Acts 24 that Felix left Paul imprisoned, wishing to do the Jews a favor. We're going to hear that same phrase used in connection with Festus in chapter 25. Festus was a man of action. Quickly after arriving, he traveled from Caesarea, which was the seat of the Roman government, to Jerusalem. Business awaited him almost immediately the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews came to him and brought charges once again against Paul. As one commentator notes, the renewal of the charges after two years at the very first opportunity is a measure not only of their unsleeping hatred of Paul, but also of the importance which they attached to Paul's influence. So the air must have been electric as these powerful men ask this new governor for a favor. Everyone in this scenario is seeking to gain something. Festus wants to keep his position, and to do so, he has to placate the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership wants to retain their status and their control of the Jews, so they knew that they, in turn, had to placate Festus. So, in this chapter, as well as in chapter 26... We watch them all jockey for position and power. In the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. You know, ladies, some things just never change. Turn on your daily news any day of the week, and you'll see these same struggles for position and power continuing today. These, first, these two chapters, like chapter 24, are filled With twisted plots and intrigue. For both Festus and the Jewish leadership, there's a fly in the ointment, and his name is Paul. You remember what Tertullus called him? He called him a pest. (laughs) For Festus, there was a leftover problem from Felix's administration. For the Jewish leadership, Paul isn't just a problem, he's a danger to the status quo. I pointed out last week the echoes of Jesus' trial before Paul that can be seen in Paul's trial before Felix. One commentator states that Felix is a representative of many people who are intrigued by the gospel, but recognize that surrendering to it means the loss of status, power, and control of their own lives. Felix knew the truth, but his stubborn pride kept him from accepting it. His name may mean happy, but his story is anything but happy. When Festus arrived to replace Paul, I'm not sure what he expected, but what he found was political intrigue in the upper echelons of government. He found streets infested with bandits and roving Sicarii who savaged the villages for the purpose of advancing their political power. Well, we don't know a lot about Festus. We do know that he took care of the problems caused by these robbers and assassins. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, he arranged to have an impostor embedded in their midst. After maneuvering to become their leader, this impostor arranged a meeting in the wilderness. I told you there was intrigue. The ruse was successful because when they arrived, Forces were waiting to attack, and in one fell swoop, Festus solved the Sicarii problem. But there were other political entanglements. As you saw this week, our cast of characters continues to grow. In addition to Governor Festus and the Jewish leadership, we meet King Agrippa and his sister Bernice as they arrive on the scene, and so King Agrippa does as well. But just as in chapter 24, it's good to notice that God remains the main character. So we need to keep our eye on God's sovereign control of all of the events and on the events of providence in the life of Paul. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. I've divided chapters 25 and 26 into four sections. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 12, appealing to Caesar. Chapter 25, verses 13 through 27, appearing before Agrippa. Chapter 26, 1 through 23, abandoned to the faith. And chapter 26, verses 24 through 32, answering the ultimate question. These chapters contain no explicit doctrine, but they are filled with principles that relate to doctrine. Doctrine. Principles of theology that relate to how we ought to perceive things in our everyday lives. So they're not just theoretical ideas, they are intensely practical truths. I've chosen four principles that I'd like to highlight this morning, one for each section of our outline. In section one, the principle is, God's plans and purposes always prevail. In section two... God's providence is preeminent. Section three, God's presence in a dedicated life is powerful. And finally, in section four, God's offer of salvation is still present. So if you will, turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 25. I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses from the Legacy Standard Bible. Festus then, having arrived in the province after three days, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with him, requesting a favor against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, while they set an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, Let the influential men among you go down there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them accuse him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no man can hand them over to me. Did that phrase ring any bells for you? I can't resist interrupting our reading to point out Paul's confidence that God is totally in control of this situation. He says, if none of these things is true, no one can hand me over to them. Here's one of those echoes that I was talking about. In John 10, Jesus is in the middle of the good shepherd discourse. His audience is the disciples and some Jewish bystanders. He has just said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Like Jesus, Paul was confident that God's plan would proceed on course, no matter how circumstances seemed. Now let's finish up the reading. In verses 11 and 12, Paul continues, I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, To Caesar, you shall go. We can immediately see at least one way Festus is following in the footsteps of his predecessor. Chapter 24 ends with Felix wanting to do the Jews a favor. And in chapter 25, verse 9, we learn that Festus wanted to do the very same thing. He wanted to do the Jews a favor. So it's politics as usual. Right away, The Jews are in Festus's face, pressing him to deal with the inherited problem of Paul. Now, this was a true dilemma for Governor Festus. If he released Paul, the Jews would likely cause trouble, and Rome would not be happy. If he kept Paul a prisoner, he had to have a legitimate reason for doing that, and there simply wasn't one, because Paul was an innocent man. Perhaps you'll recall on Easter Sunday, Pastor John spoke about the providence of God in the burial of Jesus. As I sat there and listened, I thought, what a perfect (laughs) lead-in, because this morning again, the providence of God is on center stage. I appreciate the perspective of a commentator named Derek Thomas when he says, God's providence may may appear to be inefficient. God's providence may appear to be inefficient. Well, certainly from our perspective, keeping Paul in prison seems very inefficient. But our perspective is always limited, ladies. Isaiah 55.8 helps us to have the proper perspective. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. If we take the time to remember God's hand in history, We can see that his ways aren't our ways, and we can see that his providence is not inefficient at all. Think about John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He was one of the best and greatest preachers of the 17th century, yet he languished in prison for some 12 years. From an immediate perspective, that seems like a terrible, terrible waste. But looking at it now, some 300 years later, we realize that without Bunyan's imprisonment, Pilgrim's Progress would never have been born. Similarly, it was Paul's imprisonment that gave him opportunities to witness to people in places that he never would have been allowed otherwise. He spoke to men like Lysias, the commander of the Roman garrison, but it also gave him opportunities to speak to governors and kings just as Jesus had promised Speaking to the apostles, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. It was also during times of imprisonment that Paul penned Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So what may seem like inefficiency to us is not inefficiency at all. Rather, it's God's plan and purpose being fulfilled according to his ways. In the early days of the COVID pandemic, our movements were significantly restricted. I'm sure you remember that. Well, how many of us chafed at those restrictions? In spite of those difficulties, did we focus on the fact that God's kingdom is still advancing? Did we take the opportunities to share where where it was available to us, to share the gospel? Well, the restrictions are now beginning to lift, so what have we learned? Will we simply sigh with relief and return to whatever pleases us? Or will we be more committed to redeem the time that God has given us to invest in things that matter, for eternity. Frankly, I had to think long and hard when I asked those questions because I have to admit I haven't always invested wisely, but it's a good time for us to refocus our hearts and our lives on living for eternity. While in prison, Paul didn't sit around complaining about the work of the gospel, that it was being stalled. That's not what he did. Instead, he seized every opportunity available to him to share the gospel with anyone that God put around him. It didn't matter if it was a prison guard or an occupant in the palace. If ever there were a man that trusted in God's sovereign purposes in all things, it was Paul. Despite how circumstances may appear to us, God is still on the throne and he is not inefficient. His plan and his purpose in all things, including the events of our lives, are right on course. Our God is active in history. He was active when the Jews plotted to ambush Paul in chapter 25. Those plotting Paul's murder here in these chapters are not the 40 Jews who came to the chief priests and elders with a plot to kill Paul in chapter 23. This plot, comes straight from the top, from the Jewish Sanhedrin. It's interesting to realize that in less than 20 years, they reaped the injustice they had sown. In 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. The hatred they had for Paul is impossible to overstate. Well, they asked Festus to have Paul brought to Jerusalem on the pretext of having him tried there. At the time, Paul was in custody in Caesarea, and since Felix or Festus was about to leave for Caesarea, he told the Jews to bring along their most influential men, and they could prosecute him in Caesarea, if there was something to prosecute. This, ladies, is God's providence in action. Here are more echoes of mercy and whispers of love. If Festus had allowed Paul to be sent to Jerusalem for trial, he would have been murdered en route. Instead, through natural means, God moved to accomplish his plan and his purpose. In that Easter message I mentioned, Pastor John mentioned how staggering it is to consider God's sovereignty touching our lives through his providence. Do we recognize God's providence in our lives? How about when tragic events enter our lives? Is God providentially at work then? Well, according to Romans 8.28, a verse you all know, I'm sure, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we quote that verse all the time, but we really need to include verse 29 because it tells us, what the good is that all things are working toward. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Predestined, called, justified. Glorified. All the events of our lives are designed to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is God's good purpose that we will one day be glorified and spend eternity praising and glorifying our Savior as He reigns in power and majestic glory. I would dare say that we all faced uncertainties that resulted from the pandemic. I know that some of you have faced the death of loved ones. Others have been seriously ill. There have been job losses or a myriad of other particularly trying circumstances. So it may not always feel like God is working on our behalf. However, if our goal is to be more Christ-like, I think most of us have to admit that it's the hard things in life that bring us to the greatest dependence on God and that bring us to humility. You see, our king is coming. Everything is moving toward the establishment of his kingdom, and Paul's eyes were fixed on that coming kingdom. How about us? Where's our focus? Paul had been confined for two years. Now he faces trial yet again. I'd never given much thought to the benefit Paul received from his confinement. But after years of tireless activity and the stress and strain of ministry, plus the many beatings he endured, these two years in custody were surely a blessing to him. He had some freedom. His friends were able to minister to him. And here was an opportunity for some much-needed rest, more echoes of mercy, more whispers of love. Paul's going to need to be rested Because another trial, another deadly storm at sea, and a shipwreck on the island of Malta lie ahead for him, as we'll see next week. As the trial begins, Paul stands before Festus with the Jews crowded around him like wolves ready to make a kill. However, I love this. Pastor John describes them as toothless wolves (laughs) because their case has no teeth. They can't prove any of the charges against Paul. Like Felix before him, Festus needs to protect this relationship with these men. So he was undoubtedly relieved when Paul appealed to Caesar. In Roman jurisprudence, there is something called provocation. It was this provision that allowed Paul, as a Roman citizen, to appeal his case to Caesar. Now, the Caesar ruling at this time was Nero. For most of us, that name provokes images of cruelty and brutality. He murdered his own mother. He murdered his wife, as well as many other family members. He was also responsible for the death of thousands of Christians who were starved to death, slaughtered, and used as torches to light his gardens at night. So appealing to to Nero doesn't seem like a smart move on Paul's part. But at the same time that Paul appealed to Caesar, Nero was a model emperor, not the vicious, maniacal man and ruler he eventually became. During his first five years of rule, between 54 and 59 AD, he was trained by Seneca, a Stoic philosopher, on the fine art of rendering judgment and ruling well. It was during this period before Caesar ruled with such brutality that Paul appealed to him. God sovereignly placed Paul before Festus at this particular time in Nero's role, and he is providentially moving Paul toward the very thing Paul's heart longed to do. He's going to be on his way to Rome. This was God's provision. This was Paul's opportunity, and he took it. As soon as the appeal was made, the law required the trial in the lower courts to come to a halt. Far from trying to evade justice, Paul was demanding justice. His demand let Festus off the hook and meant that Paul was headed for Rome. God's plan and his purpose always prevail. Now, as we move into the second section of our outline in verses 13 through 17 we discover that Paul was taken to Rome. King Agrippa and Bernice just happened to arrive in Caesarea. Well, actually, they didn't just happen to arrive there at all. God orchestrated their arrival and gave Paul another opportunity to witness to unrepentant sinners. We might suppose that Governor Felix, or Festus, was a subordinate to King Agrippa. But this was actually simply a courtesy call from a neighboring ruler to the new procurator in an adjoining province. This is actually King Agrippa II, who was the last in the line of the infamous Herods who figure so prominently in New Testament history. His great-grandfather ruled at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ and was responsible for ordering the death of children under the age of two in an attempt to kill the newborn king. His father was responsible for the death of James and for arresting the Apostle Peter. He met an ignominious end being eaten by worms after he failed to give God glory. How's that for a family tree? Bernice was actually Agrippa's sister, as well as Drusilla's sister. Though attempts were made to cover it up, Agrippa and Bernice maintained an incestuous relationship that became scandalous gossip in Rome, according to the historian Josephus. More ugly twists and turns. For Festus, their visit was an opportunity to get some much-needed counsel. Agrippa was a trusted advisor, and he knew all things Jewish, and he was also known to be very loyal to Rome. He seemed to be the perfect person. To give Festus advice. Well, Agrippa was so intrigued by the case that he asked to heal here directly from Paul. If it weren't so very tragic, the scene describing Paul's appearance before them would actually be kind of comical. Agrippa and Bernice arrive in the auditorium with great panache, surrounded by commanders and prominent men of the city. Can you just see that spectacle? Agrippa puffed up with pride and Bernice flouncing around in all of her finery on display as they make their grand entrance. Well, the irony of all this pomp is that it was in this very city that their father had perished because of his pride. Apparently, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. So Paul is ushered into the midst of all of this pomp when Festus announces his dilemma. He says, I found that he committed nothing worthy of death. And since he has himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing to write about him to my lord. Therefore, I've brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. It's amazing, isn't it? Basically, Felix is saying, can you please come up with some charge I can use before I send him off to Caesar. Festus is at his wit's end. Paul, by contrast, stands calmly and confidently in the middle of this circus. He rests in the assurance again that God is sovereign and that his providence providence is preeminent. Paul trusts his God. He's a man abandoned to the faith. That introduces us to this third section of our outline covering verses 1 through 23 in chapter 26. Paul, ladies, had a single life purpose. He voices it in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. His commitment to sharing the gospel is lived out in this section. So look with me at chapter 26, verses 1 through 3. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Just think of it. As a result of Agrippa's desire to hear the Apostle Paul some 2,000 years ago, we are, by God's design, able to hear Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, give the noblest defense of Christianity ever made in a court of law. One commentator observes, that Paul came into the room with chains rattling among those dressed in all the trappings of power. Yet Paul wore the robes of righteousness. The others were dressed in filthy rags of their own unrighteousness and were bound as slaves to sin, greed, self, and power. So while Agrippa listened for the third time in the book of Acts, Paul shares the story of his conversion In his first account in Acts 9, Luke recounts Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. He was radically changed from a persecutor of those who belonged to the way to a proclaimer of the gospel message who now embraced the way. The second account in Acts chapter 22 explains Paul's commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And now in Acts 26, his testimony explains the centrality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead to the gospel message. In verse 6, Paul tells King Agrippa, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused By the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? The hope that Paul speaks of is the sure hope of Messiah and his kingdom. And it really shouldn't have been incredible to them that God raised the dead. After all, the Old Testament recounts a number of instances where people were raised from the dead. In 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah raises the widow's son. In Second Kings 4, Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. And David speaks of it in Psalm seventeen fifteen when he says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. So Paul was right. They shouldn't have been surprised that God raises the dead. When Paul defended himself in chapter 23, he stood before a crowd. Now, here in chapter 26, he stands before King Agrippa. Well, there are others in the room, but Paul's focus is on King Agrippa. He addresses him personally in verses 2, 13, 19, and 27, and even acknowledges that Agrippa is an expert in all questions and customs among the Jews. As he recounts his conversion, the contrast between who he was before his encounter with the Lord and who he is now is stunning. He went from persecuting Christ to praising him, from plotting against Christians to preaching Christ, from bondage to liberty, from futility to forgiveness, and from death to life. You see, God's presence in a life that is dedicated to him is profound and powerful. Paul was fully committed to the cause of Christ. He endured great suffering and pain in the process of proclaiming that message. But he found great joy in the journey. You see, his testimony wasn't so much about him and the change in his life as it was about the power of God to change the life of anyone Who will face their sinfulness and repent it's about the power of God to forgive and it's about God fulfilling the promise of a coming Messiah well you'll remember that Festus breaks into Paul's speech as we come to the fourth section answering the ultimate question Felix doesn't just speak up he speaks in a loud voice he will be heard Paul you are out of your mind Your great learning is making you mad. Well, that's one way to shut down a conversation, isn't it? You're crazy, Paul. But did you notice how respectfully, yet pointedly, Paul responded? He said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Felix, but I utter words of sober truth. Now, we think of the gospel as good news and as a reason for rejoicing, and surely it is that. But we need to realize that it is also a very sober truth. Earlier in verses 16 through 18, when Jesus was speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus, he spoke of turning from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. He spoke of the forgiveness of sin and the inheritance that awaits those who have been sanctified by faith in him. The gospel is good news to those who repent. And come to faith in Christ. But it should be a sobering truth to anyone who rejects him. Because they remain in the darkness of sin and in the dominion of Satan. In verse 27, Agrippa asks, or Paul asks Agrippa a very direct question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now ladies, this puts King Agrippa on the horns of a dilemma. How is he going to answer? If he acknowledges that he believes the prophets, he'll have to admit that what they taught about the death and resurrection of Jesus is true. If he denies believing the prophets, his Jewish subjects will be outraged. He's backed into a corner, and he wants out. I don't know about you, but there are a number of times in Scripture when I wish I could hear the tone of voice of a speaker or see the expression on their face, and this is one of those times Many, including the New American Standard, translate King Agrippa's response as, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. I almost titled this section, Almost Persuaded, and there have been a lot of sermons preached with that title. But was he? Was Agrippa Almost Persuaded? Paul intentionally directed the conversation to require a response from Agrippa. His desire was for Agrippa to come to repentance and faith, and Agrippa knew that. In his commentary on Acts, Pastor John says, the phrase is better translated, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in such a short time? The question of what a person believes about Jesus Christ is the ultimate question. He claimed to be God. If he's not God, then he's a liar and a fraud. If he is God, and he is, then he's worthy of our praise and obedience. What we conclude about Jesus Christ determines our eternal destiny. Will we be eternally with Christ in heaven? Or will we be forever separated from him in hell? I love the tenderness of Paul's heart when he responds to Agrippa. He says, I wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Paul's great hope and desire for King Agrippa and Bernice, his great hope and desire for Festus, his great hope and desire for Felix and Drusilla, his great hope and desire for even those who abused him, was that they would repent of their sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I'm sure if Paul were standing beside me on the platform this morning, it would be his great hope and desire for every one of you as well. First Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I recently had an interesting encounter with a young resident physician. One of my doctors wanted to schedule an appointment for today. So I explained I was teaching on this date, and they graciously rescheduled the appointment. But as I was leaving the room, the resident who was still in the room with me just casually asked, he says, so what are you going to be teaching? (laughs) Well, I smiled and told him I was a Bible teacher and that I was going to be teaching about the sovereignty and providence of God. So he smiled and he said, wow, so you're one of those people that can quote John 3.16 without even having to look it up. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, he was off and running. So Lord willing, at my next appointment, God will open the door for us to actually talk about John 3.16. We'll see. Well, you all know that Paul was again vindicated, but his primary goal, ladies, was not vindication. It was to bring lost souls to repentance and faith. That's why he traveled those long distances to preach the gospel in spite of being tortured and persecuted along the way. Paul's theology was founded on the character of God. He not only believed the principles we've talked about today, he lived Those principles. God's plan and purpose always prevail. God's providence is preeminent. God's presence in the life of a person that's dedicated to Him is powerful. And praise God, His offer of salvation is still present. There'll never be a more convenient time. Being persuaded isn't enough. Today, ladies, is the day to repent, believe, And receive salvation. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now capture my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Let's pray. Lord, how can we possibly thank you for the mercy and love you extended to us in salvation? How do we thank you for the example of men like Paul who show us what it looks like to live a life dedicated to you? Maybe one of the best ways we can express our thanks is by sharing the gospel with others as someone did with us. Would you help us to be bold in that? Help us to trust you, whatever the circumstances of our lives are, Would you help us to walk in the power of the Spirit so that the first thought in the morning and the last thought we have at night is praise to you. Help us to stand up for the gospel in a world that's hostile to its message. Help us to stand out as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have a message of hope to share. We know, Lord, that we can only do that by the power of your Spirit. Help us to depend on only you so we can be women of influence who bring honor and glory to your name. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you for loving us while we were yet sinners. We pray in the name of our precious Savior that you will draw to yourself those who need your love, grace, and mercy in salvation for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.